following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys, I want you to imagine uh, that you're a 17th century uh, pilgrim and you're preparing to travel across the Atlantic Ocean uh, to sail from Europe to the New World. You've spent weeks getting your affairs in order to depart. You're, you've charted your course. You've made every provision for every contingency. That is anything that could possibly happen. You've prepared for this. And you've sought the counsel of many wise men along the way. And just as you step onto that dock to board your vessel, uh, laden with all your earthly possessions, perhaps with your family in tow, an experienced-looking man calls out to you from the side, and he offers, he offers his services to you. He seems to know what he's talking about. He seems to have done this before. He has some good ideas, actually, that hadn't occurred to you, even in all of your preparation, that no one else had mentioned to you before, things that were new, things that seemed interesting, innovative, even wise. But then, but then you remember one of your advisors, one of those men who had made the journey in the past, uh, had taken the time to warn you about something or someone, to warn you of pirates. Pirates disguised as trustworthy, seafaring men. Pirates offering their wisdom under disguise, claiming to help you and to help you from their own experience, but yet with foul intentions to destroy you, to even take all that you've put together for your journey. And then you begin to think, oh, man. How can I test this guy to make sure he's not one of those pirates? How can I know that he's the real deal? Well, in our text this evening, in Matthew chapter 7, in verses 15 through 23, the Lord Jesus gives his disciples wise instruction on how to recognize spiritual pirates, uh, what he calls pseudo-prophets, false prophets, fake prophets. And you see, what he's been doing up to this point, and even what we read in verses 13 and 14, what I preached last week, is he's been charting this, this tight course, this narrow way of heavenly living for his disciples on their voyage through this world into the kingdom of heaven, from the old world to the new world, if you will. So it makes sense that he'd warn them about such a dangerous threat to their spiritual well-being, this dangerous threat of spiritual pirates, of false prophets who lay traps to ensnare them, to make shipwreck of their faith along the way, to compromise their perseverance in the journey home. And in essence, what Jesus says in these verses, which we're looking at and considering this evening, is as follows. He says to his followers, Christians, be warned. Be warned against false prophets who pursue the ministry for personal gain to their eternal condemnation. Christians, be warned against false prophets who pursue the ministry for personal gain to their eternal condemnation. And we'll consider this warning of Christ's under three heads as, 
as we seek to learn from him how to recognize such false prophets and teachers as they come into the church and even as they crop up within the church. First, we'll consider the danger of false prophets in verse 15, and then our discernment of false prophets in verses 16 to 20, and thirdly, Christ's condemnation of false prophets in verses 21 through 23. So we start in verse 15. Look at it with me. Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. See, Jesus begins with a warning for all Christians in the first half of the verse, and then he describes the nature of the danger that he's warning them against in the second half of the verse, and he uses a metaphor to do that. This warning for all Christians, beware of the false prophets. This is for you and for me. It's for each of us as individual believers. He's addressing all his disciples. No one's accepted. Beware of the false prophets. If you think back to that great statement in Isaiah 8.20, when spirits and mediums are claiming to have secret knowledge and truth in Israel, what is the prophet's call? To the law and to the testimony. That is the standard by which we judge all of these false prophets. We'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. But this call to beware, to appeal to God's truth, that's for each of us. It's for all of us together. But it is for churches especially so. See, Jesus gives this imperative. He gives this command in the second person plural. He says, all y'all keep holding your mind away from and against false prophets. All of you beware false prophets. Where do we see this given to us by way of example in, in Scripture? By way of approved example, very clearly approved example. It's in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. We read this about uh, the Bible study group, the little church in Berea. They received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things which Paul and Silas taught them were so. And what's frequently glossed over in that verse is that they were examining these things together. This was something they were doing as a church, not just as individuals. And the Bereans are a good example for us for uh, this, this call to beware of falsehood together, to examine truth claims together, to search the word together as a church in the church. Well, Jesus, after giving this warning, then describes the nature of the danger. He uses a metaphor in the second half of 15. He says, uh, these prophets are those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is one of the most famous passages of Scripture, isn't it? We all have the trope of the wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, or even in Little Red Riding Hood, this is appropriated. The wolf doesn't dress up like a sheep, but dresses up like who? Grandma, to trick Little Red Riding Hood so that he might devour both of them and destroy their lives. Uh, this is a very familiar image to us. Uh, but we need to be careful to know exactly what it is Jesus is talking about. And William Perkins uh, makes a helpful point uh, to us here. He says, Wolves in sheep's clothing are not those who are merely in error. They're not those who are hypocrites in their own personal lives, uh, merely. They're not even actually those who are schismatic and, and uh, under, uh, with no good reason, break communion with the church and start their own churches. Uh, 
No, this is much worse, what Jesus is warning against here. He's warning against those who present themselves as teachers of God's word in sheep's clothing, but who are in their hearts, indeed, opposed wholeheartedly, entirely to the things of God, who have rejected God's mandate for teachers and are instead seeking after their own self-interest their personal gain at the expense of others, indeed at the expense of God. You see, Jesus will command his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 20, to do something very specific in the making of disciples. Not only are they to baptize uh, those whom they are discipling, but they are to teach them to observe all that I commanded you, Jesus says. These wolves in sheep's clothing are not committed to that mandate. They're committed to teaching a different curriculum, a curriculum that serves them, that doesn't glorify God. Ezekiel described them for us in chapter 22, verses 23 through 31, didn't he? And he'll describe them under many different images in his, uh, in his prophecy, perhaps most famously as uh, the false shepherds or the bad shepherds who take advantage of the flock. And Micah picks up on that. There's so many of of the prophets. Uh, But what does he say about these false prophets that they have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them? For whom? For the people of Israel, telling lies to them, saying, thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. These prophets have conspired together in the midst of the uh, covenant community like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. That's what the wolves are doing. That's why they're ravenous. That's what Jesus is describing for us. And then in Romans chapter 16, Paul Uh, takes this warning and he rephrases it, perhaps in a bit more of a clear doctrinal statement. He says, for such men, false teachers, teachers under pretense, are slaves or servants, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, we might say, their own personal self-interest. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That is the nature of the danger here that Christ presents. So how can we detect this danger then? This command to beware, it's for each of us, it's for you, it's for me, it's for each of you boys and girls and moms and dads, uh, young and old. If you are in the church, you must beware of this. So how can we detect the danger? How can we tell when someone purporting to be a teacher of God's word is in reality what Paul describes, a slave of his own appetite? In verses 16 to 20, Christ directs us in our discernment of false prophets, our second heading. And our discernment of false prophets involves examining the fruits of a ministry and distinguishing true from false or truth from falsehood. Look at verses 16 to 20 with me. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit uh, fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. 
You see this extended metaphor that Jesus gives. He's calling his disciples to detect the danger by examining the fruits of ministry. Fruits here, there's a lot of discussion about what exactly they are. Is it the personal lives of the false teachers? Is it, uh, you know, uh, their teaching, their doctrine? I think it's their teaching and their doctrine. That's what Jesus is calling fruits. Uh, he's, he's telling his disciples to be wise in inspecting the doctrine of those who put themselves forward as false teachers. It's not to say that their lives don't matter, but that's to say what is in mind here, what is in view here in this particular warning. And so what we're looking for in, in their doctrine their doctrine for life and living, how to live, why to live in a particular way, we're looking for two things. Uh, we're looking for two things about their teaching. In the first place, we're looking for a right view of Scripture, and then we're looking for a right view or doctrine of Christ. So first, the right doctrine of Scripture. What is it that we must hear from anyone who stands up to teach the Word of God? We are to hear uh, that... The Word of God is set forth as authoritative, as infallible, inerrant, inspired, life-giving, and also sufficient for faith and practice, and all the teaching of that teacher must uh, show that he is rightly interpreting said Word. It's not enough for him to just get up and say, the Word of God is sufficient for everything, and then go and talk about something completely different. No, he must teach the word and teach in submission to the word. Why is that? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question and answer number two. Boys and girls, you have this one memorized already. We looked at it a few weeks ago. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? What rule did he give? The word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. And what does 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verses 16 and 17 tell us about this rule? And this is one of our responses to the reading of the scripture, isn't it? All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Not some scripture, not this scripture and that scripture, not scripture plus a bunch of other stuff, but no, all scripture is described in these terms. So that's the first thing we need to see, is a true and right doctrine of scripture. The second thing we need to see, as we examine the fruits of ministry, is the right doctrine of Christ, of who he is of what he has done, and of why he has done it. Christ himself claimed to be fully man and fully God. And false teachers in every generation of the church have, from within the church, sought to nuance that or compromise that or flatly deny that claim that Jesus made, that mysterious, impossible-to-comprehend claim that I am Christ fully God and fully man. Not that he ever said it in those words as such from his lips, but he claimed to be the son of God, son of man. And also, what did he come to do? To reveal himself as the savior of sinners. That is what he came to do. And what is he coming to do again? To reveal himself in fullest measure as Lord of the nations and judge of all the earth. 
Now, if any teacher stands up and denies any of that, Christ's full deity, his full humanity, his mission as Savior, and uh, full accomplishment of that mission, or his station as King and Lord and Judge, if someone comes and denies that or nuances that in some way, well, then you probably have either someone who's very, very confused or, more likely, a false teacher seeking to tear down Christ from off his throne in a way. Who is the only redeemer of God's elect, brothers and sisters? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man and who was and, who, and continueth to be both God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard uh, that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. This is the point of examination. The doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of Christ. Dr. James McGoldrick, I'm wearing one of his ties today because I knew I was going to make this reference, uh, really presents this well in his book, uh, Christianity and Its Competitors. I recommend it to you. Get a hold of it. It's a short read. Perhaps we'll use it in Sunday school here. That's why he prepared that book, was for a Sunday school class he taught. And that's what he argues, that every heresy in the history of the church Every false teaching that has crept in or from without has attacked the church has made the attack on these two points, the Word of God and the person and work of Christ. And that's very wise. It's a good, astute historical observation. All right. In, verse, uh, in, in these verses 16 through 20, as we're examining the fruits of a ministry, good fruit that's good and, and, and wholesome for eating and bad fruit, which is good just to be thrown away, uh, we need to distinguish between true and false not just to recognize, but to distinguish very clearly through uh, of what they are and, and what effect they have on us. You see, true teaching, good fruit, is spiritually wholesome. It's good for eating, if you will. It's nourishing. Uh, but false teaching is not. You don't want to eat it. It's going to poison you. It'll make you sick. It'll weaken you. It'll destroy you. And so the good fruit, we might say, would be like, Real food. Now, I don't, I don't know if you know this, and it's not that fast food is very nourishing, but when you watch commercials for fast food, it's not real food you're seeing on the commercial. It's actually like foam and paint and nail polish and, and, and gel, and it's stuff that they make to look like real food and to look delicious, but if you were to eat it, it would poison you and you would die, no matter how good it looks. But the real food, which might not always to our eyes, look as delightful to us, that is what you want to eat. That is what will nourish you. That is what is wholesome for eating. And spiritually speaking, this is what wholesome teaching is. It's practical in nature. It has effects on your life. It is delightful to you in your spirit. You behold the beauty of Christ and you delight in it as you would in a beautiful landscape or in, in, in your beloved family. It's reverent and weighty. You recognize the holiness of it. It's no trite or light or frivolous thing. Can't stand it when you see these churches, which in order to bring people in, make a light thing of the gospel and of sin. 
But true teaching, it resonates and it inspires reverence, but also awe. It's a wondrous teaching. It's like, as as Ryan said in in Sunday school today, when he, he looked into the heavens and beheld the stars and he was struck with wonder at the creative uh, uh, power of God. That's what true, wholesome teaching does. That's the kind of feeling it inspires in us. Have you ever encountered such teaching? When you've gone to the Word, when you've sat under powerful preaching, when, you have, uh, when you've sung psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, old and new, that really resonated because you could recognize the voice of Christ in the clear presentation of His truth. What was that feeling, awe and wonder, reverence and delight that changes your life? Well, true teaching is also, and preeminently so, and this is how it changes your life, God-exalting, but false teaching exalts man at God's expense. And we see this again and again, some blatant examples drawn from history. These might be a bit dated for the kids, but um, you might be fascinated when you read about them in the future. But a lot of the cults that have arisen in, in our country have actually been cults of personality, of charismatic individuals that could attract a following and then progressively took them further and further away from the truth, even some to death. Jim Jones and the, the, the Jonestown colony down in South America is probably the most A famous example of that, he gathered to himself 800 people who left this country and moved to South America to a colony of his own making, and then he, he, he convinced them all to poison themselves. And that's what that looks like. Uh, Others might be David Koresh or Father Divine, people who actually claim to be divine. You know, it frightens me when I consider that in our mainstream culture and media, we have these cults of personality uh, around media figures and movie stars, musicians, but even, and, and this is the most frightening of all, around politicians who wield political power, even those who seem to do such good for, for the nation, and yet some people take that to an extreme, and it's frightening. Beware of the cult of personality, that which exalts man over God, exalts man at God's expense. Beware of it in the church, because it happens in the church. Well, in verse 19, Christ anticipates what he will develop further in verses 21 to 23, even as he repeats that principle he introduced in verse 16, but now set in verse 20 as a conclusion, logically following this extended metaphor of fruits and trees. And having concluded with this not simply reminder, but declaration, therefore, or so then, you will know them by their fruits, by their doctrine, their teaching, the fruits of their uh, ministries, so to speak. He uh, He now expands upon what he anticipated in verse 19, where he said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's that principle that he's expanding. It's comprehended under our third heading, Christ's condemnation of false prophets in verses 21 through 23. Look at them with me. He continues. And frequently, preachers will break this out as a separate sermon, but it goes together with what he's been teaching already. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We're given here in these verses a rather sad scene in two parts, bringing to a conclusion his teaching on false teachers and prophets. In part one of this scene, you see these false prophets' desperate defense. They make a false profession of allegiance to Christ. They call upon him as Lord, Lord, perhaps simply to respect him and to honor him, much like Muhammad does in relation to our Savior. He calls him a great prophet, but not the Son of God. But perhaps even some of them claim that Jesus is divine or semi-divine or the Lord of all creation, like Joseph Smith did and, and like the Jehovah's Witnesses do. And our Mormon and Jehovah's Witness friends, they, they claim something very special about Jesus, even more special than what the Muslims do, but yet they withhold from him full deity, don't they? They don't claim that he is, in fact, fully God. And so these false professions of Lord, Lord, they're spoken without the will of the Father, Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he, really he only, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, will enter. What is the will of our Father in heaven for sinners in need of his salvation? What does he demand of us? Faith, repentance, and new obedience. That is the will of his Father, our Father in heaven. In John 6, 40, we read, For this is the will of my Father, Jesus says, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's not enough to say he's Lord. You must believe he's Lord. You must have saving Faith. And what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Are you here this evening resting upon the work of the God-man or on the work of you? Your own works, your own merits, your own efforts. Do you believe that Christ's work is sufficient? That he, in fact, is fully God and fully man without any imperfection, in fact, uh, indefectibly perfect. He cannot be imperfect. That's not an option. It's not a possibility. Do you believe in this Jesus Christ? That's the will of your Father in heaven, is to have faith in him. And then, as we heard last week from Mr. Cook in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so wedded together with faith in Christ is also uh, repentance unto Christ and setting off and persevering in a course of new obedience, what we'd call sanctification, the putting to death, the works of darkness and lawlessness and living unto the righteousness of Christ uh, imputed to us, but also communicated to us by his spirit and worked in us more and more. 
To put this more plainly, what is repentance unto life? Dr. Piper recited it this morning in his sermon. We did not coordinate, but I will repeat. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That is the will of our Father in heaven. Faith, repentance, and new obedience. But false teachers lack these three. They lack faith, repentance, and new obedience. They lack the spirit of life who grants these things and works them in God's people. They practice instead an unconverted ministry, which Christ describes prophecy, exorcisms, casting out demons, and working of miracles. Now, you might think, how can somebody prophesy for God? How can Jesus describe someone like that? That's not a Joseph Smith. That's not a Muhammad. That's not a Jehovah's Witness. That's someone who's, who's prophesying the truth and then casting out demons in the name of Christ and working other miracles. How is that even possible? That doesn't line up with Scripture. Oh, wait. Yes, it does. I can think of a few guys who prophesied, even though they were not in living, vital union with Christ who were given a measure of the Spirit for a particular purpose of God's, but who had no faith in Christ as Savior. Balaam, son of Balak. He was filled with the Spirit of God in his mouth, and he declared the truth about God's purposes for Israel. But he ends up dying on the battlefield, fighting against God and his people. King Saul was among the prophets, even as he was deranged in mind and setting off on a course of destruction. And in Philippians 1, 15 to 18, Paul describes some who are similar. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Remember, he's writing this from prison. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So it is very possible for people to prophesy and to prophesy truly without having true faith in Christ himself. On a warmer note, don't you love when you read these Christian biographies of men like John Wesley and... Uh, and others who in the course of their ministry, sometimes even under their own preaching, they're then converted and God saves them. And so that tells us as well, it's possible to preach the truth in a saving way without having that experience yourself. The second one is casting out demons. And I'll be very quick about this. Is there anybody even among Jesus's bands of followers who were sitting there that day on the mount who would cast out demons in the name of Christ and yet perish in their sins. Ah, Judas Iscariot, the traitor. He cast out demons, and he worked miracles too. And Paul describes in the working of miracles in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, leaving open this possibility. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, that is, work miracles, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And Jesus will say to the 70 after they come back from their mission in the Gospel of Luke, rejoice not that you have power over demons, but rejoice in what? That your names are written in heaven. Do you see the warp and the woof of Christ's teaching? And that is the dangers of an unconverted ministry. No matter what good you do for God, no matter how many students you teach, no matter how many people are saved by your conversation with them or under your preaching, yet if you, do not, if you have not done the will of Christ's Father, that is, if you have not faith in Christ, if you're resting not in Him, if you have not experienced true repentance unto life wrought in you by the Holy Spirit, if you have not set off on that course of new obedience, stumbling though you may be, and yet perseveringly seeking for the glory of God in your life, none of these things bear any weight at God's judgment throne. The only thing we can confess when God says, why should I let you into my heaven, is Christ, Christ. Christ and his work on my behalf. Christ's merit, Christ's righteousness. You see, these false prophets, they've had a ministry without humility, without contrition for sin, without heavenly power behind any of it, without God's blessing. Not only an unexamined life of sinful self-indulgence, but a life of unrepentant self-interest in the ministry. They've pursued the ministry for other reasons. Apart from the glory of God, Christ warns his disciples against these selfish people after personal gain. And then in part two of this condemnation of false prophets, Jesus matches their false profession and counters it with a true profession or confession. The word that we translate here in the New American Standard as declare in verse 23 It's actually the word that we more commonly translate as confess. Uh, But it's appropriate to translate it as declare in the context that makes a lot more sense. I might prefer, and then I will pronounce upon them. Jesus confessing and declaring in in a pronouncement as judge. I never knew you. This is the true profession. I never knew you as what? As mine, Jesus says. You don't belong to me. You're not one of my servants. You've been serving yourself. And this is the reality that Christ highlights about false prophets. And he then renders a devastating judgment. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These workers of lawlessness, those who practice lawlessness, they are condemned to suffer deprivation of God's goodness. That is, they are told to depart, to go away from Jesus. Jesus says in a way, quoting Psalm 6, which we sang, get out of my face. Get away from me. There's no place for you here. You aren't mine. I don't recognize you. Isn't that interesting? He's giving his disciples tools to recognize false prophets and to distinguish them from true prophets or teachers in the church. And yet, at the end, what is his judgment? I don't recognize, that is, acknowledge you as prophets. Condemnation comes not only against their actions. He doesn't just hate the sins, mind you, 
but the condemnation is of their persons. He calls them workers of lawlessness, those who practice lawlessness. Just like in a courtroom proceeding, the criminal is sentenced for the actions. For these false teachers, they resemble the self-glorifying man of lawlessness and son of destruction described in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, described as he who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Again, tearing God off his throne in order to seat himself there in his place. That's what the false prophet does. But the condemnation is very interesting. Jesus surely, surely, and he'll say this later, is bringing the weight of judgment upon them. But the way he characterizes it here in this place is the condemnation to experience God's justice apart from his grace. He emphasizes the deprivation aspect. He emphasizes the fact that they will not know the goodness of God. They will know God all right. Everyone in hell knows God as judge. None of them know him as father. None know him as savior, deliverer, comforter, or lover of their souls. They know, them, they know him simply as a righteous and exalted, all-powerful judge. And there's no good news in that for sinners. And so that's what Jesus sets before his disciples. John Chrysostom, the great preacher of the early centuries of the Christian church, said this, Now I know indeed that many tremble only at hell, speaking about the judgments of hell. But I affirm the loss of that glory of heaven to be a far greater punishment than the experience of hell. Yea, better surely to endure a thousand thunderbolts than to see that face of mildness turning away from us and that eye of peace not enduring to look upon us. End quote. Whatever desperate defense false prophets make at the last day, Jesus' declaration is definite. As Christ and Lord of all creation, he says, guilty. And so, Christians, a couple lessons we can take from this. First, we can take heart. We can. That Christ, our Savior and our wise teacher, he whom we know as comforter and lover of our souls, the true prophet of God, is also our king and our defender against all false prophets who creep into the church and seek to scatter the flock that each of us might be consumed. He reigns victorious over them even today. We need not fear them. He gives us the tools to recognize them by his spirit. So you might ask, if that's the case, why does he permit them to come into the camp at all? There are two reasons uh, that I can think of that can be illustrated well by a different travel illustration. The great migration of families across North America in the 18th and 19th centuries. If those who came to the New World in the 17th century uh, on transatlantic ships, they faced the threat of pirates and marauders. Uh, those who packed up Conestoga wagons in search of a life out west, they faced different kinds of dangers. They faced the dangers of con men, false guides, hucksters, and highwaymen or thieves. How they safeguarded themselves against such threats illustrate for us a few lessons and in terms of answering this question, why in the world does God permit false teachers to come into our midst? To survive, uh, those on that great wagon train had to keep to the path. 
Likewise, we must keep on the straight and narrow path of God's saving grace in Christ, the old paths of redemption, and not strike out on our own to invent our own path of works righteousness, lest we perish along the way. But in the second place, survival in that context, going out to the Yukon or San Francisco or whatever, depended on taking that narrow path, that demarcated path, uh, as a caravan, that is, as a group, in a train, not as lone journeyers, or even as a single family, but rather as groups of families. That's typically how they went off together, and that's how they survived together. Yes, they moved much more slowly. Yeah, it wasn't glamorous. There was a lot more manure to shovel out. But I'll tell you what, they lived by and large, or if they were going to live, that's one reason why. What does this illustrate for us about our spiritual lives? Uh, It illustrates for us the lesson that I think false teachers can teach us, not directly, but indirectly, by their very presence, that God teaches us through them in a way. A, we must stick together and not neglect the assembling of the body, as is the habit of some, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And B, to reverse the order, we must stick together on the narrow path that Christ has charted for his disciples. Brothers and sisters, Christ's warning is for each of us to heed, but it is especially for all of us to heed together as a church. As we've seen, the big idea of our text this evening is this. Christians be warned against false prophets who pursue the ministry for personal gain to their eternal condemnation. Such false prophets seek to draw Christians away from Christ's true doctrine for life, which is the church's mission to teach and preach, namely and especially Christ's teaching about the Word and about Himself. And why do they do this? Because they are ravenous wolves, intent on one thing, not the glory of God, not the good of their neighbors, but on the gratification of their sinful, worldly, fleshly appetites. They are intent upon building up their name, their fame, and their treasure. And how do they do this? By distorting the truth, by calling into question God's word, and by denying the person and work of Christ. And praise God Almighty, Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and he will judge false prophets. In the meantime, as we make our journey through this present evil age, Let us stand steadfast in the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Let us contend earnestly for this faith as individuals and as a church, especially on the twin pillars of our doctrine of Scripture and our doctrine of Christ. And let's do so together. I can't emphasize that enough. We need to watch out for each other and for this little church of which most of us here are members tonight. We are praying for God to bless us with elders and deacons, with officers here at Antioch. And as we do so, we need to receive Christ's warning here to give heed to Paul's sober words to the Ephesian church elders in Acts chapter 20 when he bids them farewell. In verses 29 and 31, he says this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Notice he uses the same word as Jesus. Wolves, ravenous wolves, savage wolves, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, he says to the elders, men will arise, speaking perverse things to do what? To draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Christians, be warned against false prophets who pursue the ministry 
for their personal gain, to their eternal condemnation. To be drawn away by them is to be with them then, cast out of God's comforting presence, hewn down like the Pharisees, where the axe was laid at the root of the tree, and thrown into the fire. So let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without failing. Let this be our resolution and our motto even as a church, as God's family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, our Lord and Savior who is preeminent over all nations. Let us pray. O Lord most high in heaven above, we bless your name that you indeed rule over all things, that you superintend all the history of your church, and you do it for the good of your people. We thank you that you love us. We don't deserve your love. We can't even fully appreciate it. But Lord, we revel in it. We thank you that you've given us tools to recognize false prophets. And we thank you that you've given us the great gift of your spirit, who is not himself a tool or an instrument, but is of the very same essence of the Father and the Son, one God, three in one. Lord, we pray that you would grant us a fuller measure of your spirit, that in weeks and months and years to come, Antioch would continue to be as a city set on a hill in this little community, that the word of God would be preached from here with boldness and clarity and truth. Correct us, Lord, where we are unbalanced or where we err, but God, keep us far from all malice and greed. And teach us, Lord, to number our days and our steps, that you might be honored in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Lord, toward that end, we dedicate ourselves to you, even this week. And we dedicate to you a portion of that which we have received from your hand this evening. Use these gifts, our offerings, for the advancement of your kingdom and the extension of it, even to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our closing hymn this evening is, uh, plays on the theme of John 14, verse 6. It's number 266, Thou Art the Way. Uh, it's to the familiar Arlington tune. Notice, I, I, just the first and the last stanzas, Thou art the way to thee alone from death and sin we flee. And he who would the Father seek must seek him, Lord, by thee. Thou art the way, the truth, the life. Grant us that way to know, that truth to keep, that life to win, whose joys eternal flow. May this be the theme of our heart and our prayer even this evening. As we take up the offering, we'll be singing this together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.